0: Well, good day. With me today is Dr. John Sinclair. Uh, Dr. Sinclair is a professor of physics here at Kentucky Wesleyan. He's received his Ph.D. in Condensed Matter Physics from the University of Tennessee. He is the head of our physics program and teaches the full curriculum. This semester, he's teaching physics in the arts, intro to general physics, uh, general physics, and our freshman seminar. Dr. Sinclair is also at the forefront of the campus's move towards mastery grading, and acts as the mentor for faculty looking to adapt those principles, either whole or in part. His current research is in SolGen processed photovoltaic films, a central component of solar energy materials. These are the reflective coatings used on solar thermal collectors. Dr. Sinclair is a scientist, a humanist, a philosopher, and he's also uh, a repeat customer. This is his third time on the podcast, so Doctor Sinclair, thanks so much again for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Um, we might be covering some of the same ground, but I want to do it in a different way. It's always fun to have you back. You're the the first three time guest, so we have a jacket for you. Fantastic. And this is audio only today, so you can't see it. It's it's beautiful, <laughs> um, multicolored, and uh, there's pins and you know some medallions on it. Belongs in a musical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I have a lot to talk about today, uh, and I want to start with a a photovoltaic technology, Um, and your research might be a little mysterious to some folks. If you could describe what photovoltaic technology is, maybe in more general terms, how sunlight is converted into energy that might help back
1: our way into it. Yeah. So what... one of the interesting questions is always how do we get electricity out of whatever it is we use for power? So when you think about power, you think about uh, a variety of options, right? You have steam, you have, uh, which is the same as coal, right? And you have nuclear power and you have hydroelectric power where uh, in Knoxville, right? We have TVA. And all of those basically use heat to create steam that turns a turbine because you can't just get Electrical power out of anything, you have to have some coupling mechanism. And when you think about solar electric power, instead of thinking about creating steam, uh, either through burning coal or through having water fall over generators or through having neutrons heating up water, um, what you actually have is you're using the work function of the material, which basically means. Uh, If you think way back to your high school chemistry, you have a certain number of electrons that fill up uh, the shells in a material. uh, And the outermost electrons can be ejected from said material. Uh, And now I've got basically a, a current that I can use as a sort of a cathode and an anode and basically make a little battery that like goes in your cell phone or, you know, your remote control. uh, And that is what we get there. So we get straight direct electrical power uh, instead of going through some intermediary. That isn't to say that it's more efficient in terms of energy in and energy out. Nothing's ever going to beat fossil fuels um, that we know of right now in terms of efficiency. Uh, That might change with the research that's going on in nuclear fusion, Mm -hmm. but still to this day, joules in, joules out, fossil fuels are the greatest thing. Uh, There are unfortunate side effects of fossil fuels uh, and unfortunate side effects of um, solar materials uh, and almost anything that we're talking about, right? Because all of these things use raw materials and raw resources that have to be... Uh, collected, and that's not always done in the most ethical of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also have to worry about the byproducts with nuclear, right? I mean, as Mm -hmm. great as nuclear is, you got to figure out somewhere to put that uh, material when it's done for a long, long, long time that's Mm -hmm. really safe. Uh, And those byproducts can be nasty. Uh, They can not only be radioactive but also poisonous and a variety of other things uh, with fossil fuels you I mean have potential problems with carbon emission uh, as well as the problems associated with getting the materials out of the ground like strip mining isn't the greatest thing for soil erosion and mm-hmm. you know frackings not the greatest thing for groundwater <laughs> mm-hmm. so you think about this in terms of trade-offs it's always trade-offs there's no free lunch well, kind of, if fusion works out. But aside from that, mm-hmm. um, you know, you always have to have a balanced perspective that is minimally uh, affecting your environment, minimally affecting the populations of people that mm-hmm. you're using to get those resources. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, we need to take a more fully uh, you know, utilitarian perspective on this. Like, are we, are we harming... How are we harming the environment? How are we harming the people that are harvesting the materials? And how are we harming potentially future generations as mm-hmm. well? And mm-hmm. all of those things need to come into play. In forms of calculus. It's not a, an easy black and white. It's never easy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if things are easy, then they're solved and we don't have to worry about them anymore. <laughs> yeah. But those, those ethical concerns are, are real and valuable. Absolutely. Um, one of the... One of the potential things uh, so you know my particular research is on a is on a very scalable, fairly easy process more than uh, on trying to get really high efficiencies or anything like that right now um, and it's uh, it's unique in in that realm it It also primarily uses um, titanium oxide, so that 's not harvested particularly. Um, Unethically, mm. as opposed to things like ger- germanium and other rare earth materials that um, have been historically sort of stripped from well silver yeah silver right. yeah. Well, I mean so of course right I mean you can't you can't not talk about silver in South America and the right. Mexican mines and I right. mean that's the whole water pollution water pollution displaced communities. Uh, the use of mercury in the uh, purification process right. that. If memory service was replaced with formaldehyde, which also isn't particularly good. Right. Uh, so uh, any sort of ore processing you have, yeah. uh, those well, when kinds you think of about the, the major
0: components of, of solar panels in particular, and it's you know silicon silicates, yep. right? But you need that metallurgical grade silicon. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. really seventy percent is produced in China with yeah. you know forced labor.
1: Yeah, I, I mean if you're lucky, forced labor, right? right. I mean unfortunately. Uh, transparency is not something that anybody uh, is that is ever good for profits. Mm-hmm. Right, right, <laughs> yeah, right. right. Uh, so you have you have that issue, and you know the other materials that work well are things like germanium, germanium oxide, and ruby or not ruby, sorry, sapphire. Mm. So you don't really want to <laughs> use those either. <laughs> That's not
0: particularly right. scalable. Yeah. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Well, um, so the. The functional limits though of solar energy is is what i 'm interested in so and for folks that are you know uh, contemplating installing these in your in their house um, or on the roof uh, you know uh, what are what are the capabilities and what are the limits what are the, how what what capacity
1: does the science set well, there are a couple problems right i mean it's the science is never the problem with these things uh, the science is the uh, infrastructure and the backbone of the electrical grid. So before I started working on solar cell technology, my my primary research was on superconducting materials. So I have a lot of background in terms of understanding energy or sort of electrical power back, back backbones and grids. Uh, and, you know, you end up, if you, if you put solar panels on your house, you end up selling a lot of the power back that you that you generate. Uh, you also have problems with things like uh, you you can never be, well, you can be self-sufficient, but you can be self-sufficient in sort of like a 1950s way, not a self-sufficient in a like today kind of way in what we need uh, or what most people need if they want constant high power outputs constantly. So you're always going to have to be a, attached to the grid and the grid can only buy back so much power. Uh, and even though we have Uh, a federal infrastructure um, for most places, uh, including here in Kentucky. Um, We just, the great thing about the United States is we've always been at the forefront of these ideas. And the bad thing about the United States is we've always been at the forefront of these ideas Mm -hmm. because we didn't, we didn't have the um, luxury of planning this out from day one. If you look at somewhere like South Korea, where, you know, when they were building uh, Seoul and other major cities, they could lay down internet infrastructure and build all around it. They could lay down their electrical backbone and build all around it in terms of maximum efficiency. Mm. Um, you could do a lot more. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, since the early 2000s, um, there was a pretty famous Nature paper that came out that was like, if we want to stop, uh, if we don't want to have to worry about greenhouse gases anymore do two of these like seven things. Uh, And one of them was uh, rebuild the electrical backbones of the developed world and connect them together, which isn't, which isn't unfeasible. Technologically, Mm. (laughs) it's unfeasible politically. Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And, and that could solve a lot of problems. I mean, the other things were like, you know, put, put, quadruple pane glasses in every office building in the United States, Mm -hmm. you know, these, these sort of small, but add up kind of things. And with solar cell technology, I think we need to start thinking of everything as a, as a piece, right? Like it'll be a piece of the solution. Hydroelectric will always be a piece of the solution. Mm -hmm. Um, Geothermal could become a piece of the solution. I believe that it's, that nuclear is going to eventually have to become a piece of the solution, a much bigger piece Mm -hmm. of the solution. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and it's the single reliance that is sort of the the concern for me in any of these situations because they all have negative effects and so like there's a threshold like nature likes slop it's okay with like a little bit of bad stuff going on so if we can spread that little bit of bad stuff mm-hmm. around a whole lot of areas then it's fine right mm-hmm. i mean it takes significant significant energetic pressures to cause significant changes right we we have tailbones because why not have a tailbone, right? There's no pressure that gets rid of it, so it's going to stay. And It's the same thing with uh, or I believe it to be the same thing with a lot of the ecological issues that are going on today. It's the sole reliance. It's the overuse, the overabundance without sort of the a significant push to develop these other technologies. I mean, you know, we're really good. If we can commit to something, we're really good at doing it, right? Think about how fast we, we went from, you know, Einstein's letter to the atomic bomb, right? That was ridiculously quick. And, you know, if we had the will to sort of do a Manhattan-like project, uh, on the energy issue, we could, we'd be fine in 10 years because we have the people, we have the infrastructure, we have the money. What we don't have is a particularly scientifically literate population. And, uh, we have a bunch of, uh, even in the purest of areas, you're going to have a bunch of people with a bunch of agendas Mm -hmm. and that's inevitable and I'm not saying I don't have an agenda either, uh, but <clears throat> there's not there's not a lot of transparency around these competing ideas and there's no interest in compromise. So, you know, I've heard that many times, obviously. So yeah. this
0: kind of Manhattan Project yeah. approach to problem solving. Yeah. What you know, as a physicist. Sure. What has changed in between, you know, you know, over time that would prohibit that sort of you know, mass uh, utilization of you know brain power, energy, technology, and as sort of a single
1: will. Well, my own thoughts, but well, I, th- I think I think a piece of it, right, is um, the Manhattan Project was was a defense oriented issue, um, and w- it's it's always sort of been okay to to put a mass movement uh, towards defense oriented populations. But I, I don't think that's the entire project. Um, <clears throat> I think when you look at, say, things like uh, religious demographics in the 1940s, you had like 23 percent of non-Catholic pastors identifying as socialists. So it was OK to have a significant publicly funded effort like the CCC and and like things like the Manhattan Project. And you had people in positions of power that were like, well, we need to take this utilitarian perspective and this is going to keep the boys out of going to Japan. And like, that's hugely empathetic because the consequences are tomorrow. The consequences aren't in 10 years Mm -hmm. and five years Mm -hmm. and seven years and 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the other thing about science and the thing that's frustrating is I don't think people understand that. Like when I think about science, the thing I always know about it is it's wrong Mm -hmm. and that's good. Right, because we continue to change and, and get better and do better things, and when when you apply that to something like physics, um, it doesn't have the same kind of uh, spookiness to it as when you apply it to like biology. Um, when you apply it to physics, you end up with silly quotes from uh, you know people in the 1800s saying you know, well, if you want to do science, as engineering's the best thing to do because everything in f- physics has been solved except for two problems, mm-hmm. and then those two problems end up building relativity and quantum mechanics and then semiconductor technology and everything. Right. Right, right, right. So, so it's always a silly perspective to think that we have Mm -hmm. perfect knowledge of anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, if you, if you look at, if you look at what's happening uh, sort of over long time scales, ecologically um, we're, we're at a, we're at a point now where you can see small you know, statistically significant perturbations away from what you'd expect. And the problem with that is, is, well, okay, it's a chaotic system and the initial conditions aren't really known and it can go one of two ways. It can go real, 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 real bad or just like maybe bad for a while, Mm. right? Neither one of those are particularly good and why would you bet on the, on just the bad for a little while one, right? If it's, it's like when, when, when COVID was around and people were complaining about masks, and they're like, "It's not a big deal, da 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 da." Like you only have a one in ten thousand chance of dying from it. I'm like, "Well, if I had a one in ten thousand chance of buying of winning the lottery from the lottery, mm-hmm. I'd go play the lottery every day, mm-hmm. right?" Mm-hmm. Those small odds mm-hmm. with big wins are really are are really. Significant, Right. Yeah. I mean, if you have a one in 10,000 chance of dying, don't do it. Mm-hmm. If you have a one in, uh, you know, a one in a 100 chance of something to, uh, you know, win $7,000, right? Do it every day. Right. Because the math adds up that it works. Right. One hundred and one dollars. Do it yeah. every day. The math adds up. You're going to make a dollar every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's sort of these opportunity costs that over long time scales. You know, I think it's I think it's really difficult to see the benefit. And I mean, I do think fundamentally people it's just hard to see uh, these changes around things like energy independence, because it's like um, it's like being yourself right when if you go and work out. You never are the one that sees the changes to your body. Somebody else sees the changes because they only look at you at once every few weeks, right? Mm-hmm. They see the changes. You don't because it's mm-hmm. this gradual mm-hmm. shift. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a perception problem, too. Uh, so you can't get a mass public initiative to move in that direction. I also think that, you know, it's really hard to get as somebody who worked at the uh, at government labs for a long time uh, at the NSF at the National High Field Magnet Laboratory and then the Oak Ridge National Laboratory before that. Uh, and I'm a lab kid. My dad worked at the lab for like 30 years. So, um, it's hard to change anything in the way the funding structure is set up. Mm -hmm. It just, it, it is what it is. And you're not going to lose your funding, but you're Mm -hmm. not going to get more Mm -hmm. and they're not going to shift it around and do a whole lot of things with it because it takes an act of Congress Mm -hmm. to do that Mm -hmm. stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's hard, right? Because, you know, uh, I mean, I guess you can get some stuff done in reconciliation where you don't need a supermajority to get through the Senate, but it's not exactly the easiest thing in the world to get anything done. Uh, and if you don't have an existential threat like, you know, Germany and Japan in World War II, mm. uh, how do you get 60% of the politicians to agree that this is something that's important?
0: Well, every time we talk, I get a little bit more of an insight into your, uh, let's say, cosmology. Sure. And your thinking. And, you know, what little I know about your research tells me that it is driven by these ethical concerns and, and yeah. you're looking for responsible, sustainable ways of sort of growing, you know, uh, renewable energy, Yeah, which is, which is, uh, you know, compelling and uh, for all the right reasons. Um, there's another, you know, facet to your personality that we haven't talked about yet. And that's your, your spiritual convictions.
1: Yeah,
0: And, you know, I see the interplay there. I want to plumb the depths of that a little bit today. I want to talk, more specifically, about the time you spent over the summer.
1: Yeah, so I spent twelve days uh, at a vipassana retreat center in um, right outside of Savannah, Georgia, uh, with my wife. Uh, I'm I'm married to a therapist and an herbalist, so uh, we we sort of do these things together. Um, and you know, I, I have a tendency. I, I think people have a tendency to believe that scientists are very much these one dimensional robots who are um, interested in in one thing and one thing only. And and this is why I love doing things like teaching k 101 is to, to show them that you can't be solely defined by your work. You have to be full people with, you know, depth to be the contributing members of society that I think we want everybody to be. And <clears throat> my religious convictions have always been sort of something that – or my – my spiritual life uh has always been something that's uh been been pretty fluid um i grew up in a very uh evangelical family uh and you know there are there are difficulties there uh with certain issues like the conception of faith is something i fully believe in but when you're applying the conception of faith to something that's provably wrong, mm. I have a hard time with it. And um, I, I've been kicked out of more than one church. Uh- <laughs> there, there is faith. There's faith in every
0: endeavor. I mean, absolutely is not.
1: No. Absolutely from not. Faith. Absolutely not. There's faith in every endeavor mm. because because. Epistemology is is complicated, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it it has to fall back on either some sort of infinite regre- regression or some sort of Wittgensteinian sort of understanding of like the sun's going to rise tomorrow because the sun has to rise tomorrow. If the sun doesn't rise tomorrow, then I don't know what reality is. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I, I have no problem, and and I am extraordinarily interested in in ideas around faith. Um, it's just, you know, if, if somebody tells me that nobody, you know, you can know that if you swing a rock and a rope, it won't hit you and you still won't stand there. I'm going to be like, I will. Cause I do it in a demonstration every week. I don't know what you're mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and you know, I'm, I'm not a good materialist. I, I do believe right. That there are, there are things beyond and all those things have to be are things that we don't understand now. Um, I I don't think that, necessarily that those things won't become eventually materialist. Um and I do have this under I, I do believe that experiences and uh lived experience are extraordinarily important because, you know, you, you have things like concepts of generational trauma, for example, that that affect people uh like children and children of children of people who experienced uh deep trauma. Um in their lives. And there was no reason to scientifically believe that until we understood what epigenetics were. And now it's obvious, right? I mean, but there were hundreds of years or a hundred years where that, that concept was rejected because there's no scientific understanding of it, but there's obviously people that are experiencing it. And you're like, well, it's not real because I don't understand the model that makes it real. And I don't think that's a fair or reasonable experience. So I'm always interested in um, trying to trying to connect with, with some, uh, with whatever it is that is bigger than myself, that is sort of playing but this to game. Yeah, well, to make sense. Yeah. To make sense of the irrational. It doesn't need to even make sense. Like, I, I don't really care if it makes sense or not. Um, there are so many things that don't make sense and I, you, you just sort of have to accept that, uh. We can go wildly off off topic here uh, for a moment, and and I don't mind sharing this at all, uh, even in a public way. Uh, you can cut this if you want to, <laughs> <laughs> but but I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been I've been sober for uh, about seven years, uh, so <clears throat> I've had to have an experience. Uh, with something bigger than myself mm-hmm. to be where I am today, mm-hmm. and you know what that looks like to me has changed over the time, but is something that's fundamental to my identity as a human being, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I, I I have found it and can find it in sort of. Um, different different christian religious places I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated with that experience um like i said we just got back from 12 days at this vipassana center which is a buddhist uh, meditation center where you actually get to live live like a monk for 12 days and 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 what what they mean by that is not only are you on a very rigorous meditation practice and retreat uh, that is about 14 and a half hours of meditation every day. Uh, two meals, you wake up at four thirty in the morning. Uh, obviously all vegetarian food, like there were, there were scorpions in <laughs> in the bunkhouse I was in and, you know, I'm catching them in a, in a cup and throwing them outside instead wow. of killing them. Cause I buy in. I mean, that's, that's sort of one of the aspects of myself. And What did you learn about yourself? Uh, you know, when you spend that much time in silence and not just in, um, not just in in and, like and, traditional silence, and you're not communicating, not, not communicating. Right. So that means no writing, no, no reading, gestures. no gesturing, no right. eye contact, no nothing except for with the teacher. Uh, and there's a facilities manager who like, you know, if you fall and break your ankle, he'll, he'll help you out or whatever. Um, you, you, you get a sense of. First of all, your body in a way that is sort of unbelievable in in the sense of like uh, you can feel the air conditioner kick on on like every inch of your body. Mm. You can like f- you can you can feel your pulse in your finger. You know what I mean? Like like sometimes you feel that when your heart's really racing or something. Mm-hmm. Like, you'll feel your pulse somewhere else, but you'll just be sitting. And you'll be able to just feel that, mm-hmm. like your your understanding of how much stuff our brain just shunts out to make us functional in the worlds that we live in that are overloaded with sensory experiences becomes extraordinarily apparent. And you've meditated before? Oh, every yeah, uh, yeah, and and still do. Yeah, so it's a practiced yeah.
0: habit, but not to this level. Not of no, never,
1: never to this level. You know, I mean, I have a, I've had a reasonable practice. Um, for probably the last, you know, almost seven years of my life around, not daily, but periods of daily. And at least, you know, once or more, usually more than once a week of, mm-hmm. of sitting uh, either through guided meditations or silent meditation. The, the thing that was different here is this was all silent meditation. So, um, you sit through a talk explaining sort of their theory behind this, which honestly, I have very little interest in. Uh, (laughs) I'm more interested in the experience itself um, and, and the, and the technique. Uh, And then I, I, you know, collectively, I think the last day you get to talk with the people that you're with. And I mean, that's fascinating too. You're, you're in this, you come out, you've sat next to these people. Everybody is sort of, you know, you can't wear, can't wear clothes with patterns on it. Everybody's wearing basically the same kind of clothing. Like you get this very egalitarian view and and you walk out and, you know, I I spent these 12 days with 50 guys from, you know, dishwashers and cooks. So it was all male construction. Well, my side was all male. The other side was all female, but you were, you were separated by by gender. What was the logic there? Well, so it is extraordinarily, um, intense emotionally hmm. and um, this organization has been operating in the United States I think since the 90s and they have had no complaints or no no complaints or actions of sexual assault so i the, the idea is i think really to remove any possibility of sexually untoward feelings or okay. behaviors because it is like when you, when you shake hands for the first time afterwards, like it's electricity running wow. through your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I mean, you haven't, you haven't been touched in 12 days, right? Mm-hmm. You've, you've just been on gravel and ground and grass.
0: So, so you'd spend your day 14 hours meditating. Yes. What does that, what does that look like?
1: Are you alone in a room? So no, there's a little bit of, so Every room—so you have a room, um, but there's also a giant meditation hall. And in the meditation hall, it's split, so there's a big walkway down the middle. All the men sit on one side. All the women sit on another side. Okay, so
0: you can see them during the So you can see them, yeah.
1: So you can see other people. um, And of the 14 hours, uh, six of them um, uh, are—you have to be with other people. And then the rest, uh, you have a cell in your room— Uh, And you can go meditate in basically a little closet. Uh, So you have options. Um, (laughs) I was the new guy and on the men's side and and the new guy has got – put in something that looked like military style bunks. Uh, so we, we spent a lot of time, uh, in the actual hall (laughs) because it was nicer and it wasn't cement floors and, (laughs) Mm. and bad air conditioning, you know, and in Southern Georgia and in the middle of the summer, air conditioning's key. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of time in, in the company of other people, but, um, it's dark. Uh, you, you don't really see or hear or feel, uh, anybody around you. Hmm. Um, and then you do eat, but again, you eat in silence. Uh, the tables are positioned against the wall. So you can't like sit and look at people while you eat. So you're, uh, there are a lot of windows though, so you can look outside at nature. Are there walks? Are you outside uh, a lot? Uh, you can be outside. There are walking paths. So there's like little, um, almost like uh, little mandalas you can walk through uh and and go back. But you're supposed to not walk much. So there there are two this is this is a particular school of meditation. There there are two main uh I shouldn't say that because if somebody hears this and is part of one of the other ones, they might get upset. But uh there there is two very large national um school meditation schools, uh, in the United States. Uh, one is this Vipassana center and, and then another is, um, uh, a meditation center outside of Boston. The, the second one was in, um, California and then they've sort of been peppered in between. Uh, and <clears throat> this one particular school, uh, is very much associated with, uh, a, f- a form of Buddhism from uh, Myanmar Uh, and, uh, and is very much directed by one particular teacher. So you really spend a lot of time learning this particular teacher's technique. Um, the other school, which we, I've also done, uh, work with before, um, has a lot more, uh, people involved and different, different teachers and, uh, that have been involved and they have guests. Teachers that'll come and spend a couple of years and stuff like that. So there's a uh, the the Theravada Buddhism that comes out of Myanmar is very much focused on not moving and silent meditation. Where other forms of Buddhism, also including other Theravada forms of Buddhism, m- move in a lot of walking meditation with the silent meditation. And um, walking meditation is something that. For example, I prefer. I enjoyed this experience. I'm very glad I went to it. Uh, But there's not 100% buy-in on it for me. I've taken it and integrated it into my other practices. But the, uh, the ability to do this and to live charitably because you don't have to pay to do this, like, and they feed you and they take care of you and you do everything. Now at the end, there is a way to donate, right? Which of course we did. But, um, if, if there were many people who couldn't afford to donate and they didn't, and nobody looked down on them for that. I mean, it was, it's truly like, if you can make it through this and you think you can get something out of it, they will let you come and attend this course. Mm. Uh, one of the big ethical things that they have or that this is built around is, you know, if you can afford to do a 12-day meditation, you don't have time. And if you have time to do a 12-day meditation, you can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, I can't imagine that
0: this would be for sort of, you know, rank amateurs and, and folks that have not had a practiced appreciation for meditation It, uh, you know, the the idea of of meditating that long and being in silence and that, you know,
1: to prepare yourself mentally, you'd be surprised. Um, There were some people there who had almost no practice that made it through all twelve days. Hmm. Um, Anybody quit halfway through? Uh, two people. Okay. Um, it it, and I'm I'm almost one hundred percent sure it was a health related thing. So like nobody like, well, that's not true. One person like had a had a momentary, uh, decided it wasn't for them. Sure. Uh, And they do a good job of preparing you before you get in there, right? Uh, So you know what you're getting yourself into. And honestly, it's one of those things where the first three days are like, Impossible, mm. and then it goes from three to day seven real quick. Mm. And day seven—I mean, not day, but some arbitrary day in the middle—you're like, "I really want to go home." <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: right. But right. then all of
1: a sudden, you know, then it's five days later. You know right. what I mean? Right. So you get in. It's not as difficult as you would think. I mean. It, it, I I said it was the third most difficult thing I ever died. Right. The first most being getting sober, the second getting my PhD and then this. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I just,
0: uh, you know, uh, there's great research around meditation and and obviously vows of silence in particular about what it does to your hippocampus. Oh, yeah. And stimulating Uh, learning and memory. Absolutely.
1: Retention. Uh, Did you find that to be the case? I felt like my entire <clears throat> my entire stress system was 100 percent reset. Uh, I felt like uh, after I came out of 12 days, I felt like I hadn't I hadn't had had to worry or care for years. Um, like uh, my patience, which is always pretty good, was was remarkably uh, better. And um, did you did you sit in sort of wonderment, or did you puzzle over
0: some of the great? unsolved problems of physics no think about your own research no
1: i didn't think about anything wow yeah i mean i mean that's the goal right i mean that's that's where you're trying to get to like when i when you think the goal is to experience but it was wonder right because the goal is to experience the wonder of what is right now the two are so
0: intimately connected how could you not sort of use your your physicist mindset to
1: unite yourself with the great other, sure, maybe for the first day, but when you spend when you spend fourteen hours on the first day, like feeling the nose space between your nostrils and your upper lip, you wow. get to a point where uh, okay. you don't think about anything. I mean, just
0: so, so, and <laughs> just one one last point here: so you'd walk into the the dining hall, yeah, and
1: you'd see your wife. No, oh, no, you didn't. No, but you would so, see. She, she I would, would see her walking into the meditation. Okay. Oh, did you yeah. ignore each other? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Hundred percent.
0: You yeah. just you avert your yeah. eyes just in case there might be that incidental communication. So
1: we've been planning on doing this for a long time. Okay. Uh, she's done it before. Right. Uh, this was actually like a an anniversary gift. Um, we we on our anniversary and didn't talk to each other for twelve days. We like to say.
0: <laughs> God bless
1: you. <laughs> but yeah, I mean. It, y- y- It was. It's. It's not that hard. I mean, it's hard, but like if it's something you want to do, like it's not that hard. Hmm.
0: Well, I thought we could uh, use the balance of the time to to talk about some of those big problems. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. And quantum mechanics, and uh, just physics in general. Yeah. Not necessarily quantum mechanics, but I, uh, you know, we haven't done this before, and so I, you know, want to hear your perspective on uh, a few of these ideas. And and one, and I think one of the most interesting to me is uh, consciousness. Sure. In quantum mechanics. And related, you can relate this to observer bias. Sure. I think that's a really compelling and interesting. Could you talk about maybe the double uh, double slit uh, experiment?
1: Yeah, so double slit experience, but the most interesting experiment I think uh, you can show anyone. Uh, because it doesn't take a lot of understanding to figure out what's going on. And it is, um, it's unbelievable. It's, I mean, like the first time you see it, it is unbelievable. It's unbelievable, like, the fact that it happens. So... If, if you think about how a wave works, right? Like think about bouncing on a trampoline, mm-hmm. right? When I'm bouncing on a trampoline, uh, I can either jump with somebody and bounce them really high, right? Or we can jump out of sync with each other and almost not move at all. So that's mm-hmm. sort of the difference between constructive and destructive interference. Either it adds together or it cancels out to nothing. Uh, and we've seen this with, or most people have seen this, right? With water and waves and, and a bunch of other things and they can interact with each other. And if you take... Uh, water waves and you um, say, think about a wake, you have like a jet ski and another jet ski, you can see those little ripples, right? And they, they sort of make these xing edges that are a little bit bigger crisscrossing, right yeah Yeah. so where where you have those crisscrossing ripples you have sort of constructive interference Uh, and you can think about this with light as being like it's brighter in some places and it's darker in other places so if i take light and i shine it through a double slit what i end up with are really bright fringes and really dark fringes and the bright fringes are areas where the light is constructively interfering and the dark fringes are areas where the light is destructively interfering. Mm -hmm. One of the core principles of quantum mechanics is this duality principle of being both a particle and a wave. So um, you expect to see it for light because everybody thought light was a wave. That's a Newton thing, right? And uh, um, what, what you can do is you can take a stream of electrons and do the same thing and you see the exact same Experience. You see dark areas where the electrons never go, and light areas where the electrons collide with your um, detectors more often, and you end up with these fringing effects. And that's interesting because it says that, okay, these streams of electrons behave like beams of light, and therefore uh, electrons must be waves. Well, now here's where it gets weird. Let's put a detector inside one of the slits and turn the detector inside the slit on. Well, if I turn the detector inside of the slit on, it doesn't create a fringing pattern. It creates two dots, like it went through one or the other. Mm. And now, all of a sudden, it's behaving exactly like a particle, Mm -hmm. which is a bit bizarre. And again, this is still not too weird. It's weird, okay, but it's not too weird. The part where it gets really weird is this. I've been sending streams of electrons, so you could think of them as being waves and them interacting with the other electrons and creating these light and dark fringes. Let's not do that anymore. Let's slow down the amount of electrons we're letting through, and let's let one single electron through at a time. All right, now it gets to that double slit. It's one. It's got to go through one or the other, right? No, it goes through both at the same time and interferes with itself, (laughs) creating these fringing patterns one at a time. So how's that happening? Well, it means that that electron doesn't go through one or the other. It goes through both and it interferes with itself. Spooky. (laughs) Spooky. Yeah. It's spooky. It's not quite what spooky refers to in physics. That's action at a distance. That's similar, but a little bit different. Uh, And if I turn the uh, detector on again, it goes through one or the other and I end up with the two dots. And there's a really great YouTube video. If you're interested in this, you can just look it up and you can just see the little dots appear and the dark fringes and you can see how it all works. And when you see it, you're like, I guess it's both things at once. <laughs> right. But so the idea, or, or there is an idea, A.P.
0: Wigner. Um, yeah. So uh, contends that it's his <sighs>
1: consciousness. Sure. That affects. So, so there are a couple interesting ideas around that, right? So you can think about the fact that um, for it to go through one or the other, um, it requires an observer to be present and something that has uh, sort of, the ability to be an observer right can collapse a wave function, and that 's a possibility right but the problem is not the problem is one of the issues with our understanding of consciousness or what consciousness is is that it i don 't need something that is conscious to be an observer right so I can think about it as either observers are are affecting the world around us in a way that is sort of statistically measurable and like an affecting outcomes. And our consciousness is the ability to make that choice and force that particular outcome to occur. Right. A radioactive piece of uranium that is using to toggle a switch that affects a detector is then conscious. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so it's, I mean, there's obviously pieces to all of this puzzle and this is what, this is sort of what I mean. Like, as far as I'm concerned, consciousness is, is beyond the realm of science in some way right now. Like, I mean, it's not, and it is right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and there's value to understand or to, to sort of historical religious, uh, experiences and, um, views on anything that is outside of the realm of science, because I think there's truth in that that we just don't understand yet. And right. there might be truth in that that can't be understood scientifically. Mm-hmm. And that's fine too. Mm-hmm. But, you know,
0: it's interesting. Artificial intelligence brings <laughs> sure. this debate up. You know, what is consciousness and, and mistaking, you know, chatbots right. for consciousness. And then it – so what is consciousness if it's just, uh, you know, regurgitation – of you know these lived experiences, right? A compendium of knowledge that you're filtering through, you know, some means or some algorithm
1: in your head. So I think it's I think it's a little complicated, right? So chatbots are obviously not conscious, right? I mean, like I mean they don't even pass the Turing test. Hmm. Uh, they can't, <laughs> you know, ChatGPT for example is really good. At taking a whole bunch of information and, you know, getting you started on writing a letter of recommendation or a book chapter or something like that. Uh, if you want it to problem solve a really simple thing for you, it is not good at mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. right? It is it is not capable of, of sort of unique uh, thought outside of the given parameters. And, <clears throat> I mean, people are, animals are, right? So there's something that's like more than ChatGPT there. But I also think... You know, there's something uniquely alive about being like in a room with someone else and everybody having their eyes closed and you knowing that there are other people there. Mm. There's like a there's there's an experience that occurs Mm. there. Right. Mm. And and I mean, so maybe it's poly polyvagal like response. Right. That's going on. But that's like a piece of it. Right. I think there's something missing there. And and that is something that I think is um is missing from our idea of consciousness, right? Because classically we we don't really think of say animals as being classically conscious, right? They're, 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 they're alive, but they're not conscious. Right. But I'm sorry. My dog's conscience, right? Like maybe a hydra isn't right. Like one of those little uh, things that can get you sick from, from bad water. Mm -hmm. But like my, my dog can, can like, have a polyvagal response with me. Right. (laughs) Like there's, there's something different there. There's something sort of more going on there. And I mean, that's dogs are a particularly interesting example because we co-evolved with them and the shape of our face is the shape of our face because of them. Uh, but I think there's something more and I think there is value to the words bad, but mystical responses on, on things like consciousness.
0: Hmm. I have a, I have a good one for you. Okay. So is,
1: is entropy constant? So is entropy constant? Uh, I mean, no, right? It's always increasing. It's never decreasing. Uh, so at the time of the Big Bang, at the time of the Big Bang, was it, so you're saying is that is that like a, a total entropy it- pool? So the time of the Big Bang is, uh, so when you think- So this has repercussions.
0: So so in in other words, I guess a better way of asking this is why can't time move-
1: Backwards. In in both directions. Right, yeah. So time can't move in both directions for a variety of interesting uh, reasons. But uh, there is is an anomaly that's sort of an anachronism that's worth pointing out in, in what you said. Nothing that we know now applies to the Big Bang. It applies to you know, femtoseconds after the big bang. <laughs> so, so <clears throat> you've always got to sort of think about that, uh, when you're thinking about these kinds of questions, but entropy is this really easy concept, I think, uh, that nobody thinks about, uh, regularly. But if I take a, if I take a coffee cup in my hand and I drop it and it falls to the ground and it breaks into pieces, right? Well, that happens. All right. That's energetically allowed because of conservation of energy, the gravitational Uh, Potential energy gets turned into kinetic energy. That kinetic energy causes the uh, cup to increase speed as it goes to the ground. When it hits the ground, um, it breaks apart, right, causing uh, non-conservative forces to be at play, and then energy is dissipated. Energetically, it's allowed for that broken coffee cup to put itself back together and jump into my hand. Will that ever happen? No. No. So, entropy is always increasing, right? Mm-hmm. So, the disorder can happen, right? And I can lose that energy in the breaking of the coffee cup, in the noise that occurs, in the heat that slightly is generated by the friction of those things coming apart. And there's no reason why, from just an energy argument, it can't spontaneously come back together and jump in my hands. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't, right? So that that clearly shows in, in a sort of way that everybody would understand why entropy is always increasing and it's never decreasing. Another example would be like... Um, if I take a bunch of Coca-Colas and I throw them in a ice chest and I add some ice in it, what never happens is the Coca-Colas boil and the ice gets colder, right? What always happens is it moves towards this equilibrium state. Everything sort of gets mixed up and put together in a way that causes entropy to increase. Now, when you're talking about the big bang, you run into uncertainty issues around energetics, right? And those uncertainties, um, can can be present while also holding to this idea that over long time frames entropy always increases right i can have a refrigerator which decreases entropy because i have some engine working and some heat that's dissipating into some larger system outside of it and <clears throat> over long time scales the entropy increases of that closed system, right? And the closed system we're talking about here is the universe. And the universe we're talking about near the Big Bang is an extraordinarily complicated thing to think about because we're not just talking about space, but we're talking about space-time, right? So the universe, which is this four dimensional object that is, in some sense, never ending, is now not is is both taking up very little space and very little time and all the space and not ending. So how do you stitch those two ideas together? It's like the idea of trying to bring quantum mechanical ideas into classical mechanical situations, Mm. right? There are ways to try to do this, right? Unified field theory. Unified field theory, but experimentally there are these things called really atoms, which are interesting uh, to look up. And what they are are these highly excited um, atoms that have – the distance between their outer electronic shell and their inner electronic shell to be like, you know, hundreds of micrometers, right? So the width of a hair, they're classically large. And what happens to them in those phenomena? Well, sometimes they would behave quantum mechanically and sometimes they kind of behave classically. Mm. And by studying these ideas, we're not, we haven't had any great stitch together idea come come yet. Um, but um we can begin to understand how these two realms come together. And when we think about unified field theory, I mean, if, when we think about unified field theory, the first thing to understand is we've done a really good job of unifying a lot of field theories. Like we talk about it, like it's this big, un, uh, unfinished project, but really it's, we're at a point near the culmination of an amazing project. Um, when, when you think about, the forces that, uh, sort of govern everyday life. Um, we think about things like contact forces, like pushing a table or like driving my car, but really there's only four forces, right? So there's gravity, um, electromagnetic force, um, the weak nuclear force, the strong nuclear force. And for a long time, right. For many, 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 many years post the time we were thinking about this, right. So after, after the Renaissance, sort of around the Enlightenment, right? You, you could think about, you know, you had gravity. We knew we knew about gravity pretty pretty good, right? Like Galileo knew about gravity. Uh, and then we had electrical and magnetic forces. We didn't quite understand what they were, right? But, you know, we, we knew there were these rocks with spirits that liked to jump to other rocks. And we, we understood that, you know, I could make something that had an electrical shock. And we saw th- thunder, right? Mm-hmm. And they were separate. <clears throat> and then we... Didn't know about the other two at all. But, you know, we, we saw the unification of the electromagnetic theory with people like Maxwell and Heaviside. Uh, and then, you know, we, we began to understand about the nucleus and and we saw the weak uh, nuclear theory in terms of understanding beta decay, which is also important to understanding why entropy also increases because it has this parity, um, parity violation. So beta decays can happen forward, but they can't happen backwards. Uh, And, you know, Feynman and a bunch of other guys got all three of those together. So even though I I teach a class called electromagnetism and another, you know, it's really the electro electro weak force. We like drop magnetism out because magnetism really is just the electric force with relative motion. Mm. Uh, And then the strong nuclear force. You know, things like quantum chromodynamics do a good job of bringing uh, the strong magnetic or the strong nuclear force into unification with the weak and the electromagnetic force. And then we've got gravity. And that's the problem, right? Gravity is just the worst mm-hmm. and the best. It's mm-hmm. super cool. Mm-hmm. But um, there are these ideas like quantum loop gravity and string theory that are around. Can talk about quantum loop gravity? Sure, right. Yeah. So quantum loop gravity is is the idea that... <sighs> Gravity travels in a way that is um, sort of superdimensional in some ways, right? So I have my traditional three dimensions plus a time dimension that's understandable, plus these compactified dimensions, which are things that we don't really quite understand what they are, but they're mathematically useful. Mm-hmm. And when I have this particle, I mean, to, so I guess really we need to take a step back and think but about it. But, isn't, but yeah. isn't any time that you you know you, you call out a dimension, isn't that a cheat? So no, this must be another. So not necessarily, right? So we've got four that are really obvious, right? And I mean, people thought. So for example, right? This is this is an interesting question, right? Is is it a cheat? A lot of these things felt like cheats, like Einstein. What what do you think Einstein won the Nobel Prize for? Uh, The Gravity. Yeah. No. Right. His work on his work on solids and the photoelectric effect, because his work on special and general relativity were unobservable. It felt like cheating. It just made the math work. Right. But now we can take an atomic clock, I can put it on an airplane, I can have it drive around, right, and I can see the time dilation that occurs. Without general relativistic corrections to um, length contraction and time dilation, GPS doesn't work, right? So so we didn't have a a verification of these ideas until much, much, much after they were coming around. Fermi predicted um, the neutrino in like 34, and everybody was like, okay, Fermi, whatever. In 84, we finally find it, and they were like, oh, I guess he was right. You know, he'd been dead for 50 years <laughs>
0: well, discovering other dimensions. That would be,
1: it'd be rad. Right. Yeah. I mean, as, as much as I would like the, the world to look like, um, Oh, it'll come to me eventually. Yeah, scientific yeah, scientific yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah. But no buckaroo bonsai. Oh, <laughs> right? geez, Yeah. 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 You know, as much as I'd like the world to look like buckaroo <laughs> bonsai, I, I don't think that's going to, I don't think anybody's going to jump through it, through a like rock and end up in a black and white dimension. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: But I got one last one for you. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so the deep underground neutrino experiment,
1: so I, I- Pretty amazing. It, it Well, just the engineering fee, right? I mean, you're talking about- mile two. Right, yeah. From- Underground. It, Montana to Chicago, I think, right? Yeah, or like Illinois that. to yeah, North, North Dakota. North Dakota, yeah, yeah. Sorry, North Dakota, Illinois. It's- it's So, Neutrino's interesting, right? Because it's extraordinarily small. It doesn't interact with any- Oh, this is- I'm sorry. Oh, but yeah.
0: the, No, the idea behind this is, you know, there's many questions that yeah. it attempts to solve. Yeah. But-, but you know, well, the, one of the ones that's I think most interesting to me is where does antimatter go? Right. So you yeah. can create antimatter in a lab, but it creates matter. Right. Yeah. An equal amount of matter. Yeah. Uh, and antimatter uh, for a science fiction buffs is this great propellant. Yeah. In Star Trek,
1: absolutely. Well, it, it's also what makes uh, Data's brain possible. Right? Oh, right, yeah. uh, positronic okay. brains. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> right.
0: But but you know we have a. Amount of matter and sure. should have an equal amount of antimatter. Absolutely. So where is the antimatter?
1: Well, where is the antimatter? Is and so is what they're the doing
0: question. essentially is they're so there's a, a, a neutri- two neut- neutrino detectors, right? One at the, the the top of the funnel, right? And the other at the end, and you're you're uh, measuring the amount of decay.
1: Yep. Uh, over time, and this will help explain... Yeah, why we have this huge... Uh, so so the universe is mostly matter, right? And mm-hmm. it should be equal parts matter and antimatter, like you said, uh, which means that the universe should basically get made and then blow up and get made and then blow up and <laughs> so right. on and so on forever. Um, and, you know, so neutrinos are these, are these funny little particles, right, that are created primarily through the process of beta decay, uh, which is... Um, Probably the most important thing uh, in terms of why we have a universe, which is that if I have a free neutrino or free neutron, it'll eventually decay into a positron or a, a proton and an electron. And this is where Fermi, which is where this comes back to, uh, theorized that I have to have a neutrino. And actually, what I have is an antineutrino when I go through this beta decay process, uh, because I've created a lepton, which is an electron. And since I created a lepton, I have to create an antilepton, which is an antineutrino. And that is one of the easiest or that, – that is the most common way that, that we generate um, antimatter in today's uh, sort of conditions, universe conditions. And there are zillions of them streaming from the sun, right, right now. And they zip through us and, and they don't interact with us, right? So the question becomes um, how does this parity violation – Uh, or I believe the question is, this is a little bit outside of my realm of of physics, but I believe the question is, I said beta decay has, or the weak nuclear force, which generates or mediates beta decay, um, has this parity violation associated with it, which means it goes forward, not backwards. And um, does that have something to do with why we have just this regular matter and no antimatter or not as much antimatter because we actually can't run the clock back all the way to the beginning of, of the big bang. So we don't actually know what, what it is and why we have these different mm-hmm. ratios of matter and antimatter.
0: Hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Sinclair, another successful visit. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Do, uh, do you have a Twitter handle, a YouTube, or are you on the web? Do you have face, face, Facebook, my face,
1: yeah, uh, my my YouTube find you? my YouTube is just full of full of class class related videos. That might be helpful. <laughs> so YouTube so, channel uh, John Sinclair. No, it's it's J S I N C L A two. I believe. Yeah, All right. check uh, that out. Yeah, that's. Well, will you, or actually, you know what? I think it's actually physics kid because I started it when I was. Nineteen and it's physics spelled with F I Z I X. So you have videos that go? No, I just started it because I wanted to. I know a lot of those are bad. A lot of those early ones are like, uh, well, some of them are me explaining how to do yo-yo tricks, but most of them are me. Me talking about physics of the yo-yo. Uh, well, physics and the arts. We talk about it a little bit, and okay. in, in advanced mechanics, I use it as a, as a really good problem on uh, Lagrangian mechanics because it is really hard to understand how a yo-yo
0: goes up and down. Uh, it's hard for me to understand how you can yo-yo without pinching your your finger. Lots of calluses. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: you, yeah. Just I, you know, place. I played guitar, so I had the calluses oh, already there, and everything's fine.
0: <laughs> well, thanks again. Appreciate your time.
1: Of course. And Thank I'll you. Dr. See professors. you next time. Thank
0: you.